This is episode 57 of Cinescope, and I'll give you a weather prediction. It's going to be cold, it's going to be gray, and it's going to last you the rest of your life. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Jeremy Calcara to talk about one of our favorite films, Groundhog Day. Jeremy, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, Chad. How are you? I'm doing well also. I just started up a new full-time job, as you know, because we were supposed to record last night, and I just crashed out on you and uh, was not available. It's the first time that's happened, but I want to thank you for being flexible and for being ready to record tonight. Sure, no problem. Glad to be here. Well, how about you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about what you do, all that kind of stuff before we get into our discussion. All right. I'm Jeremy. Um, I live in Lincoln, Nebraska. By day, I'm in the underwriting department of a big insurance company. By night, I watch way too much TV and movies. At home, I have four kids, a fifth on the way, and uh, I started, I guess, the reason Chad and I know each other is from the Feel and Film Facebook group, and I started writing for them, uh, oh, in May, uh, just about TV, and uh, Aaron had put out some feelers about people interested to write for their website, and I thought, you know, I watch a lot of TV, so it'd be nice to put some of this knowledge to use, and so I... Right now, I've got a lot of knowledge and little talent, but he's letting me uh, develop that talent as I keep writing. So, <laughs> Well, it's enjoyable to read every week for sure. I appreciate it. I know you're a fan of uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well, right? Yes, yes. If it's about superheroes and it's on TV, I watch it. And Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is probably one of my favorites. Great. It's one of mine as well. We'll have to sit down and talk about it sometime because, you know, that show got off to a rocky start for some. I've always enjoyed it, but it has gotten so much better as it's gone on. This last season, I thought, was top of its game. Oh, absolutely. The With the whole, what do you call them? The androids or whatnot. That was yeah, just pretty... Yeah, the, the LMDs. LMD, that's it. And mm-hmm. and uh, Ghost Rider. It was, it was a great, great season. My favorite as well. Well, it's nice to come across another fan who sees a show for being as good as it is. And just a, a plug for everybody else. If you haven't watched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I think it's all on Netflix. So you should go check it out before the new season starts here in the next month or two. Yeah, and I would almost guarantee you that if you hear people around you saying negative things about it, they haven't watched it since season two. <laughs> that is definitely for sure. But I, I would argue season one is one of my favorite arcs. And that features Bill Paxton, who... Unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but he is a great character, and there's some great TV, especially in the last half of that first season. Absolutely. Well, cool. One more thing before we move on to our movie discussion. I just got an email like 20 minutes ago that we got our first new iTunes review in a long time. So thank you to C. Swinney for the very kind iTunes review. I definitely appreciate it. And anybody else out there, if you're listening, if you enjoy the show and you haven't done so yet, even just hitting a star rating on iTunes or in your podcast app on your iOS device is a big help to the show. So that out of the way, are you ready to talk our movie, Jeremy? Oh, I'm always ready to talk our movie. 
Excellent. So we are talking about Groundhog Day. This movie released on February 12th of 1993 and was directed by Harold Ramis, who also directed Caddyshack, National Lampoon's Vacation, Club Paradise, Stuart Saves His Family, Multiplicity, Analyze This, Bedazzled, Analyze That, The Ice Harvest, and Year One. The movie was written by Danny Rubin as well as with Ramis. And the music is composed by George Fenton, who's composed a few films, but mostly documentaries as of late. So his filmography includes The Fisher King, Multiplicity, The Crucible, The Blue Planet, Hitch, Planet Earth, Life, and Frozen Planet. The movie stars Bill Murray, Andy McDowell, Chris Elliott, Stephen Tobolowsky, and Brian Doyle Murray, as well as a couple other cameos that I'm sure we'll mention. So, Jeremy, we always start these off. What was your first experience with Groundhog Day? You know, I've been thinking about this ever since you asked me to be on the show, and I don't know what my first experience was. I was 12 when this came out, um, and my family was just pretty big Bill Murray fans. Uh, up until that point, What About Bob was a movie that got a lot of play in our house. Then this came out, and I think the first time I saw it was on a VHS rented from Blockbuster, but uh, my actually, my oldest sister, her birthday is on Groundhog Day, so I've, I'm sure that that had something to do with it. Oh, let's try that <laughs> out. It's it's Beth's birthday. And so quickly became something that we watched often and just eventually just bought the tape. So I, I'd seen it a lot, but I don't think it was in the theater, but it was just a uh, home rental. Okay. Uh, I was only a year old when this movie came out. You're a youngin'. I, I am a youngin'. Uh, but I, I, I didn't see this in theaters, obviously. In fact, I don't know... I was talking to you the other day. I was watching the movie for the first time and messaged you while I was watching. And I, I said, you know, I think this might be my first time to watch this movie from start to finish. Even though I'd seen most of it, I knew all the main story beats. I just didn't remember a lot of the details. Uh, I, I grew up, I thought Bill Murray was hilarious. But really thinking back to his filmography, I haven't seen a whole lot of Bill Murray films outside of Ghostbusters, which I think is one of the funniest films of all time, aside from just being a great, like, scary uh, horror comedy flick. Yeah. But I, I just hadn't seen Bill Murray in very much. Funny enough, uh, I was we weren't allowed to watch that in my conservative Christian upbringing. So uh, of the Bill Murray movies I grew up watching, Ghostbusters was not one of them. Oh, that's funny, just because uh, opposite experiences, I suppose. Yeah. But I, I saw him in that. I saw him in, I mean, Space Jam was one of those formative movies of my childhood, I suppose. I was four when it came out. <laughs> so I, I that that was really my experience with Bill Murray. I hadn't seen him in a whole lot, but... I mean, he is hilarious. I've always thought he was hilarious. And so it was nice revisiting this movie, watching it through start to finish for the first time. I think maybe the second time I've done that, but although the first time would have been a, a very, very long time ago. Uh, funny story about this movie. My mom hates this movie. My mom's not a very heavy movie watcher. She's much more into the rom-coms and any movie where Matthew McConaughey takes off his shirt. <laughs> but uh, aside from that, she just... Uh, she just doesn't get all that hardcore into movie watching. And so a movie like this, where to a more casual eye, the same thing happens over and over and over again. She just doesn't like that idea at all. And so uh, growing up, I always just knew that my mom didn't like this movie very much. And uh, th that's just a, a funny little anecdote. That's interesting to me. I don't think I, you know, there's, I mean, obviously not everybody's as obsessed with it as I am, but I've never met anybody that like hated it. Everybody that I know just kind of like, oh yeah, that's really good. Or, but uh, not anybody that hated it. So that's interesting. 
Yeah, I, I have a feeling that if I sat down with my mom and we actually like watched it start to finish, distraction free, she might feel a little bit differently. But I imagine most of what she's seen it on has been on like cable television and snippets between commercials of other shows or something. My dad flipping sure. back and forth. Uh, so to that casual eye, that casual watching experience, I can definitely understand where she's coming from. But hopefully she gives it another chance sometime because it is a pretty great movie as we're about to talk about. Yeah. And aside from Bill Murray being a name that I enjoyed, but I wasn't overly familiar with, I wasn't overly familiar with Andy McDowell or Chris Elliott either. The only thing I'd really seen Chris Elliott in was How I Met Your Mother as Lily Aldrin's father. Yeah, Um, yeah. With his game making. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, I mean, it was overall a, a pretty new experience for me, even though, like I said, I did remember most of it. It was just a nice full cinematic experience for me this time. And I think back when it came out, he was uh, like an SNL guy. And so he was, it's kind of weird for him to sort of be a pseudo straight man in this movie. Uh, Chris Elliott, that is. Yeah. Very much a straight man until the the ending parts of it, as we'll get into, Uh, but let's, let's move on to story. So what is it about the story that you like so much here? You know, I just, I'm a sucker for any movie where a guy is going to, just um, be motivated to have improvement, you know, give do self-improvement, that sort of thing in his life. I really do like the love story. Funny enough, I don't really like um, Andy McDowell all that much in anything else, but I do enjoy her in this, and I enjoy the chemistry that they have and just the story of him improving himself to um, be able to be a man that she might possibly love. I think that's just a, you know, tale as old as time, fun story. I I always point it out in any other movie that we discuss, so I'll point it out here. I love those proper opening credits where you just have the cloud shot, you have the the instrumental track by George Fenton playing, and it's just distraction-free, nice music, small-town sort of vibe that you get from the music because Punxsutawney is very much this small town that has no Mm -hmm. other claim to fame except for this Groundhog celebration. Yeah. So I I always love those those little introductions to the movies. And so this was a time when that was a lot more common. We still don't get that much nowadays, but I always pointed out, wanted to mention it here. Yeah, and just the way it fades away into the blue screen of him doing the weather. I love that every time. Yes, that is great. And I I didn't remember the, the... blue screen part I, I didn't remember actually witnessing him do the weather so that was a very fun scene as well he he certainly puts a lot of character into his job and i like that a lot now i like back to the future if you hadn't heard <laughs> and, i think i've heard that once or twice uh, yeah just once or twice so I, i'm a sucker for a, a time travel story and though this isn't strictly time travel this is very much in that same sort of vein where he's at least sort of semi going quote back in time and repeating the same day over and over and over again and i really like that concept of knowing what's going to happen before it happens and being able to change a situation based on one action or another or who you interact with or what events or places you decide to go to i think that's really cool and so Uh, watching him relive the same experience over and over again. And then finally he decides to take this path or go to this place and not talk to this person or run away from this person. Uh, I I really like how that adds variety to the story while still keeping it familiar and keeping you guessing because you know what happens quote, but you don't know how it might change from again, quote day to day. And you know, the fact that it really is like a, standard three-act structure story but it's told by repeating the same thing over and over again is just kind of a the fact that it works is a testament to a really good script by Ruben 
uh, a movie that came out just a couple of years ago, Edge of Tomorrow, starring Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. I had always described it to people as Groundhog Day as an action movie. And I didn't really realize how true (laughs) that was until revisiting Groundhog Day. There are very, very familiar structure elements as far as the the time travel the the repeating the day sort of situation Mm -hmm. goes and the way they approach these characters who have no idea what's going on at first but then they soon they they start to acclimate and they start to take advantage of that power if you want to call it that to revisit the same day so i i I love that comparison and i love that i i wasn't being completely inaccurate these past couple years describing edge of tomorrow uh or comparing that to this one no it's really spot on and i know i think next month there's a movie coming out called like happy death day or something that it looks like a horror movie that's the point of it is she dies every night and wakes up the same morning and she's got to figure out how she's dying so i'm pretty excited to see that just i you know anything that it's like groundhog day but an action movie groundhog day but a horror movie i'm automatically in me too i'll I'll have to check that out as well because i think i've seen that trailer also Now, just one little actual specific story element that I really enjoy is the first time he wakes up and then every day after that, that he wakes up. I love that the camera starts zoomed in on the alarm clock, especially that first time, because it sets up for the whole rest of the movie that we need to remember that the clock and the song in particular is significant. And so that first time he wakes up February 2nd, he hasn't even relived it yet. We're focused on the clock. We remember the song because it's I Got You, Babe by Sonny and Cher. It's iconic. Yeah. And it pans back out and we see him. And then from then on, every day starts with that song. And so this, even just the first time it repeats, you remember it. it it's significant because we started with that zoomed in on the clock shot. Uh, it's just a, a little element of setups and payoffs that that pays off in a, a great way. And then in the ending, when the the loop has broken and it is now February 3rd and the song, he wakes up to the song again, but it's at a slightly different place in the song this time. And yeah. so you, you've heard it so many times up to that point that even though it's the same song, if you're paying really close attention, you're going to notice that it is finally different. It's, I mean, barely like half a line away from where it is the rest of the movie, but I notice that every time. Yeah. That alarm clock is one of my favorite things. Uh, I think one of my favorite scenes is just the montage of him destroying it in different ways <laughs> about halfway through the film. Yeah, I, I like that a lot as well. Uh, what else in the story? You know, I really like the end of the story, how when they, I assume spoilers are fine since it's 20 years old, when he finally, Phil and Rita finally get together, I just really like the way that there isn't, um, that that isn't like, they aren't united by having sex or whatever. It's just by him improving himself and her falling in love with him doing that. And I, you know, I understand that people put uh, sex and stuff in movies for different reasons, but you know, when it comes to a love story, that's something that I always kind of get a little bit annoyed at is the fact that we're going to show that these two people are in love now because, uh, because they're going to have sex. And I just like the innocence with which they get together and just kind of fall asleep together um, there in the bed and breakfast. And I just really think that that's a great story, um, great way to end the story rather than, I don't know, that really fits the story rather than, you know, what you would expect, I guess, a Hollywood movie to go to. That's a good point. And it's worth noting that this movie actually sort of takes that trope of consummating their love in the end with sex by t- flipping it. So earlier in the movie, 
uh, when he's still earlier in his loop cycle and he's trying to convince Rita to go to bed with him. Like, that's his end goal is to sleep with her, I think. Yeah. And he fails time and time and time again. Lots of slaps on the face. Uh, but when <laughs> he is finally successful, he's not trying to bed her. He's just trying to spend time with her. And he is finally successful in that moment. So yeah, and she she even mentions that he just fell asleep. I mean, so the you know the idea is that she probably would have had sex with him that night, but he just fell asleep. And I just think that's great forward motion there in his character. Okay, so let's talk some characters. So starting off with the obvious choice, Phil. What do you have to say about Phil? You know, I think Phil is my well, I, that Phil is definitely my favorite performance by Bill Murray ever. I think you get to see all of the great things that Bill Murray can do from just kind of being a jerk, a funny, sarcastic jerk to just kind of the annoyed guy. That's all above it to um, getting to be the party guy. Like when he's with the, the two alcoholic guys in the bowling alley and in the car and uh, you know, finally getting to see him be just a happy go lucky fun guy. Like when he's playing the piano up there at the end, of the last party, I just really think that, I just love his character. I love Phil. Probably one of my favorite characters in movie history. I think from the start of the film, it's pretty obvious how sick he is of his job, which is a shame because he he seems like he's good at it. That that scene with him in front of the blue screen broadcasting the weather, he's got a lot of personality that he's throwing into that broadcast. It's funny. It's funny. He's very practiced, and it, it seems like it would be enjoyable to watch, but he's sick of his job. You can tell he, even though it is funny to watch, he has almost a sort of uh, subdued disdain for what he's doing. And then right after he leaves the set, he makes it very clear that he's not happy about having to go down to Punxsutawney again for the typical Phil jokes for what the fourth or fifth year in a row. And it's just not something that he, he thinks too highly of it. He thinks very highly of himself. He thinks he's above all of this. Later in the film, he calls himself a celebrity. And he calls himself the talent at one point. Yeah, he calls himself the talent. In the whole movie, Larry is calling him a prima donna. And really, that's not too far off. No, it's pretty great. Phil even mocks the groundhog just because the groundhog is held to such a high regard. And he's not in so many circumstances. The groundhog has a, a, a day named after him. And the groundhog is the one trusted with the weather. And here is Phil reporting on the groundhog the weatherman reporting on a rodent <laughs> yeah the guy who went to school to do what he does and reporting about a rat seeing its shadow that's it is i would understand why it would be demeaning but that's what i love about watching his progress throughout the rest of the film because he starts out full of himself and then there's a point where he thinks nothing of himself that's when there's there's this awful montage of suicides where it's just he's reached a point where he thinks there's no point and he's doing anything he can to just end himself and it's mm -hmm. it's, it's depressing he's reached a very low point and then by the end he has discovered that the true meaning in life in his life comes from the kindness that you show to others. You, you witness him starting to try and help people. He he makes note of this little boy who falls from the tree every single day. He says, you never thank me. But even so, he shows up every day and he saves that boy or he he helps this person or he helps that person. He makes it a point to know the town well enough that he can step in and he can show kindness to everybody he comes across. And that that's the difference that he goes on as he lives out his days. 
and just the progression. I just, just, I mean, almost, I, I enjoyed philosophy when I was in school and just to see his progression from like sort of narcissism to hedonism to, uh, nihilism and you know realizing like sort of self-actualization is just so fascinating to me every single time and you know i just love how he's got all the time in the world but by the time he's done you know he's running to places he's running out of time to do all the things that he wants to do to serve other people and i like you you know like he barely makes it to the kid in the tree and i just think that's a wonderful wonderful character arc the sequence for me that that makes me weep the most i suppose is when he tries to save the old man that he comes across on the same street corner every single morning and finally he decides hey i'm gonna try and do something to save this guy so he he takes him he gives him money first he takes him he buys him food he takes him to the hospital when he's sick and it's just this this short sequence of him trying different things to help this man survive the day and there's this moment when they he takes him to the diner and he gives him a bowl of soup and the man finishes a bowl of soup and then he hands him his own bowl of soup. And it, it's just so heartbreaking to have him put in so much effort to try and save this one person, this one old man, only for the, the conclusion of that sequence to be sometimes people just die. And that is just as important a realization for him as anything else he learns over the course of the movie is that yes, it's important to step in and show kindness to people. Yes, it's important to help wherever you can, but sometimes despite your efforts, people just die. And that's, mm-hmm. that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's just what happens. And the fact just that sequence comes like right after he's had that day with Reed where he tells her that, he starts off by saying that he thinks he's a god because of how many times he's tried to kill himself and he's still there and all that sort of thing. And so then for him to progress into trying to help that old man is just so touching. It's like him realizing, A, I'm not god, and B, this isn't about me. You know, This is about me helping other people. I think It's just a very powerful sequence there with that old man. And beyond just the, the lesson that sometimes people just die – I don't think the lesson from there is that, yes, sometimes people die, so helping them doesn't matter. The lesson is, look at the kindness that he shows this man, and look at the happiness that the man uh, shows in those moments where he's eating the soup. Look at how grateful he is. Look at how how thankful he is that somebody is finally noticing him, finally is giving him money, finally is giving him a chance to survive. Even if he doesn't, somebody is trying to help. And that makes all the difference to that man, whether he dies by the end of the night or not. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really touching sequence there. Let's move on to Rita. So what I like about her is that she's just sort of the opposite of Phil, at least at the beginning of the movie. She appears fresh. She's new on the scene. She's eager and optimistic and fun-loving, you know? Uh, The first time we see her, she's wearing her blue jacket and dancing in front of the blue screen because it makes her body disappear, and she's having fun with that. But then as we progress, we learn more about her. She's in charge. She's the producer. And when it comes to work, work is work. And so she has to put Phil in his place a couple of times. But just like Phil, who on the surface is very much this sort of grumpy old guy who's sick of his job, Rita is more than just this this goofy girl who's having a good time. She she goes beyond the surface level just like Phil does. She she knows poetry. We find out she is experienced in what is it, gothic French poetry or something like that. Yeah, something like that. 
And so there's more depth to her than we thought, and certainly more depth than Phil thought. And that's what really, I think, makes him fall for her in the first place. I just like how we see over the arc of her character, her um, optimism and her enthusiasm. At first, it kind of disgusts him. Like, he gives her an eye roll when she's playing with the blue screen. And my favorite, my probably my favorite line of the whole movie is when he gets to Gobbler's Knob on the first day. And she says, oh, Phil, it's so fun. They've been here all night. They sing songs. And when they get cold, they go get warm by the fire. And, you know, she's just all this happy-go-lucky and uh, Phil just goes, yeah, they're Hicks, Rita. Um, it's just <laughs> one of my favorite lines, you know. But So I mean, her optimism just kind of annoys him at the beginning. But really, um, that day we mentioned earlier where he tells her that he thinks he's a god and she spends a whole day with him as kind of like a science experiment or whatever. You know, her optimism for life is what really changes his outlook about his situation. I think so, too. And I was wondering, do you think she truly believes him that day when he says he's a god? Maybe not the whole being a god part, but maybe even the just the being immortal, being uh, reliving the fact that he's reliving this day over and over again. Do you think she believes him? I don't know. It would be hard for to know all that stuff that he knows in the diner, you know, if he didn't that I don't. The fact that she stays with him, even though to that point he hasn't changed at all, makes me think that in the back of her mind, she thinks it might be true. But uh, I'm not sure. I, something I thought about this time viewing it is like when they leave, when they go home on February 3rd, does, is she going to believe him when he sits down and tells her again why, <laughs> how long he was in Punxsutawney? Right. I don't know. That, that's certainly something worth considering as well. Uh, I don't know the answer. I don't know if she believes him or if she doesn't or if she just thinks he's crazy. I, I do think she's curious. And I think she's willing to give him a chance. And so just the fact that she entertains the notion for a day and does spend that day with him, I think just shows a lot about her character, whether she believes him or not. And, you know, the fact that I th- I think about this a lot is just the amount of time that she spent with him on February 1st on their drive there. The fact that she would give him in- any sort of a chance at all on any morning of February 2nd ever really just shows that her willingness to look for the best in people. Certainly. And, you know, his his reputation precedes him. Larry is quick to remind her all the time exactly what Phil is like, exactly the kind of guy he is. Yeah. Prima donnas. Yeah. Prima donnas (laughs) over and over again. But she gives him a chance anyways. And so that's what I like about Rita. Now, speaking of Larry, do you have anything to say about him? I think Larry is great. I don't usually love Chris Elliott. He tends to bother me, but I just... I love his character in this movie. He's kind of our touch point with Phil. We we know that Phil is always like this, and he's not just grumpy because um, Larry's experienced going to this thing for him for several years. But uh, I just I think he's great. Um, he's funny. I like how he he tries to give it to Phil as much as Phil gives it to him, but he's not quite uh, quippy enough to really to really do it well. Because I think that kind of reminds myself me of myself a little bit that I like to. I like to think I'm a funny guy, but, you know, then funnier people come around and you just kind of feel a little bit weird. But I think <laughs> uh, I think that he he's uh, just a pretty fun character. 
my one I, I keep saying one of my favorite like every every scene is one of my favorite scenes but when he goes up for the auction at the very end and the lady gets him for 25 cents it it just <laughs> cracks me up every two time two bits yeah <laughs> that, that's the only reason i know what two bits means is from this movie <laughs> yeah it's a, a nice little conversion right there what i like about larry i like that he's mostly just sort of a plain guy the whole movie he is sort of the foil for Phil. He is our source of past history for Phil. Just like you were saying, he is the Larry is the reason why we know that Phil is sort of always like this and that he is just sort of a, a grump. And when he's not around Phil and when it's just him and Rita, he does sort of show disdain. Like we've said, he repeats prima donna all the time. Phil is a prima donna. He wants things his way or the highway. Uh, he, he thinks he's a star, whether he is or not. That's just the way he is, and he, he, he makes sure that Rita knows that when Phil's not around. But that, to me, makes it even more special when Larry is won over, to a certain extent, towards the end of the movie by Phil. Yeah, with the little poem that he gives there at Gobbler's Knob at the very end. That's Yeah, it's a touching moment between the two of them. Yeah, and even earlier than that, there was one scene where Phil was just being... I don't know, courteous to him, just being conversational, trying to get to know him, trying to be a kinder person to him. And Larry responded in a great way even then. And then, like you mentioned, that that final broadcast at Gobbler's Knob was an opportunity for him to go up and say, man, you, you touched me. I, I yeah. You really made a difference with that that speech you just gave. And it's it's nice to see you be so different all of a sudden. What's funny about Larry, though, is once Phil's true sort of underbelly comes up and he has changed over the course of the movie, we find out that Larry is almost sort of a creep. <laughs> yeah, inviting Nancy into the van. <laughs> yeah, inviting Nancy into the van, spending time with her, thinking that she is all sort of sorts of into him and uh, she's really not. And then when he goes up on the stage for the auction, he thinks he's going to sell like wildfire. He goes up and he does a slow turn like, oh, ladies, look what you have the opportunity to get a piece <laughs> of here. And uh, then then crickets. And he, <laughs> he sold to a grandma for two bits or 25 cents, whatever you want to say. It is funny how the reveal of Phil's true character also reveals Larry's true character because he's not hiding behind Phil's despicableness anymore. It really gives um, Chris Elliott a chance to – it's like the one scene where he gets the chance to, like, be <laughs> the Chris Elliott that we – you know, it's, that's the only scene where he kind of reminds me of Lily's dad from How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> Just kind of yeah. kind of a creepy weirdo, but a lovable creepy weirdo. Now, what about uh, – I don't have a whole lot to say about him, but Ned Ryerson? Do you have anything to say about him? I love Ned. I, I wish <laughs> that Ned was my friend. I don't know if I love Ned or if I love uh, Stephen Tobolowski who played him, but uh, I just think that Ned's just a lot of fun. I do. I always think at the end of the movie when Ned shows up um, and says, you know, tells Rita how Phil bought all these insurances with him. If if Phil wished he would have not done that when he woke up and it was February third, because I don't know that I'd like to have Ned as my insurance agent. I think I'd like <laughs> to see him, you know, maybe at the store every once in a while, but. Uh, yeah, I just think he's great. Steven Tobolowski has a he has a podcast called The Tobolowski Files where he actually talks about how he got the role and that sort of thing and he said he just he just kind of got the role by uh Harold Ramis read with him, which he says is weird, and he just got it by being as annoying as possible and having his hands all over Ramis and like in his hair and touching him and stuff and <laughs> I think, "Oh, I can see that in this character. It's a lot of fun." 
Yeah, really, the only notes I wrote down for Ned's character is he's so wonderfully obnoxious. I mean, he's he's a likable enough guy. He's high energy. He's very enthusiastic, but he's just a little bit over the top for me, and he's definitely over the top for Phil. And I, I just love those those scenes where they, they keep running across each other in the street every single morning, and then Phil steps in the same puddle of ice water off the curb, and <laughs> Ned always says, "You watch that first step; it's a doozy." <laughs> he, he's just he's just a fun character. He's there's not much to him. Uh, it, it's funny when when Phil finally does show him that kindness and responds with equal enthusiasm to match Ned's enthusiasm that he's sort of perturbed and decides, hey, I don't like this very much. I'm going to run away now. <laughs> it's great. It's great when the tables are turned and he, he sort of gets a taste of his own medicine. He's just a fun character. And that's all I really, really have to say about him. I do understand uh, from an interview I heard with Tobolowski one time that if you look on the deep corners of YouTube, you might find a video of him at some sort of an event trying to do, quote unquote, the belly button thing. So... <laughs> if you're interested, you might. I've never tried to find it because I'd, I'd rather just leave it up to my imagination. I'll have to maybe check that out. We'll see. Just speaking of Tobolowski, I was looking on Wikipedia earlier, just doing some pre-recording research, and he talked about how when he first got the script, it was just sort of a, a typical Bill Murray comedy, you know? Uh, just the exact quote that I see here is Bill Murray, no consequences in comic situations. And it wasn't really until they got to shooting the film and that that, as he says, everything turned on its head and it not, became not only a good movie, not only a great movie, but a classic. So it's cool to have this guy who wasn't a prominent character, but was involved and was a fun character, just having sort of a, a bird's eye view on, on the sidelines and was able to reveal this behind the scenes information yeah. via quotes and via his podcast, which I'm certainly looking forward to listening to. Yeah, he's talked a lot about that over the years. He calls it guerrilla filmmaking because they started with a script, but eventually just kind of tossed the whole thing out. And he said they'd be reading scripts one day that they hadn't, you know, hadn't been written yet the day before. And so usually when you hear movies like that, you, they're not, they don't end up being very good, but you know, the, Groundhog Day, it ended up being, you know, one of the funniest movies ever made. So that's pretty interesting. It's very true. Now, what other side characters, if any, do you want to mention? This is probably cliche to say this, but just the town as a character, I just think it's wonderful. Just all the town people and, you know, the people you see every every day and um, just what they add to the the cast as a whole from Doris, the waitress, First you see her just as the waitress several times, but then you get to see her the last night. The piano teacher, the mayor, it's a lot of fun. It's uh, it's Bill Murray's brother. It's fun to see them together. I always I always enjoy that. But just the town has so much life and brings so much to the movie uh, with all those extras that I think is pretty great. I think my favorite is the the I don't even know if he has a name. The guy at the top of the stairs every morning. Good morning. Off to see the groundhog. <laughs> I, I just love the interactions that they have throughout the movie the whole time. But yeah, just the town in general, I think, is a great character. I don't think that's cliche at all. I think in a movie like this, especially where you have this one guy who's in an eternally unchanging town, uh, you can certainly count that town as a character. And there there are a lot of 
characters within the character, especially in that that ending scene, the the final dance party or whatever you want to call it, that, that get together where he gets to interact with all the people whose lives he has changed. And you yeah. get to see these people that you've seen in snippets throughout the rest of the film, but then you get to see them all in one place interacting with Phil and Rita is able to see exactly how well loved he is. I love that. And uh, Brian Doyle Murray, as you mentioned, as the mayor, he's fun, very recognizable too. That voice is, is one of the, the more recognizable voices out yeah, there. Yeah, he's I got think. a great it's, voice. It's very unique. Harold Ramis makes an appearance as uh, the neurologist. Yeah, the doctor who can't see well. Yeah, and then Michael Shannon himself actually shows up as Fred the Groom uh, in two different scenes. And I understand it's his first film performance. Is it? Very cool. This is what I've heard. Yeah, if you look on Wikipedia, it's the first one mentioned, at least, on his filmography. So uh, very early on in Michael Shannon's career, he was only 19 years old. Yeah, he was he was very young. And I know to go back to uh, Tobolowski's stories, and he ta- told a story on his podcast about Groundhog Day about the first time he met Bill Murray was there in the town. I forgot the name of the town. It's in Illinois. It's not really Punxsutawney. Woodstock. Woodstock, Illinois. That's right. And uh, he said, Harold Ramis, and introduced him to Bill Murray. And Bill Murray said, you know what we need? And Tobolowski's like, no. And Bill Murray said, Danishes. And he started running, and Tobolowski followed him running down the street, went to a bakery, bought all the donuts they had, and just went and passed them out to all the uh, towns, the people that live there in the towns as extras. And he said just from that day on, it was like one big family, and everybody bought in. And I really think that you can tell that watching the film. That's awesome. I I love those little behind-the-scenes stories. I think that puts us on the way to talking about the music. Uh, do you have anything to say about the music, particularly to start with the instrumental score by George Fenton? It's funny. I don't, you always talk about music and uh, a lot of my movie friends online are talking about, you know, always talking about composers and stuff. I don't really notice. I'm not very good at that, but I, I was trying to pay special attention to it since I know we knew we would talk about it this time. And I was watching TV downstairs with my wife. And she came down right as it was starting with the clouds and the opening credits. And she's like, that music's kind of obnoxious, isn't it? <laughs> I, just, I thought it was funny. It was like the first thing she noticed. And I was trying to notice it for the first time. But uh, the opening credits, yeah, I don't, I don't love that music. I like the opening credits, but I don't love his music. The two places where I think the music is really effective is the first day when he – that it's repeated just sort of there's like a horrorness to the music that's happening as he's looking out the window that I think is really effective. And, um, the, the music that plays when he's repeatedly trying to kill himself, uh, just really fits the scene well and just really makes it a little bit more powerful emotionally. The first thing that I mentioned, of course, was the opening credits of the film. And I would agree that that's not like the most pretty music from this movie. But what I do like about it is it feels like a small town kind of theme. Like it might be played by the band at the Groundhog Ceremony is a sort of vibe I get from it. You could hear a recordian playing it somewhere on a stage outside. Yeah, you've even got a little bit of the, the polka in there. Like the, the song that they're singing every day at the Groundhog Ceremony, the, the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Polka. polka. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's a fun song. Uh, most of the rest of the score does feature a lot of sort of jazzy stuff. There's a good amount of saxophone. There's a track called You Like Boats But Not the Ocean. That's actually the scene where he has told her that he thinks he's a god, right? Where he's told Rita that he thinks he's a god. And she yep. says, you know all these people. Do you know me? And he says, mm-hmm. I know all about you. And then he starts talking about 
everything about her, all this, all this information he's gotten from spending this time with her. And that music specifically is very piano centric, which is cool because that's the instrument that he eventually goes and learns and is performing at the end of the film, which I think is probably purposeful. Oh, sure. And then there are other tracks, the ice sculpture, which is after she has purchased him from the auction that final night. And then a new day, which is the very next track when he does wake up on February 3rd. And both of those are very sort of woodwind and string heavy, very pretty melodic music. Uh, I really like that stuff. And I do like the jazzy stuff as well. That's all I really have to say about the instrumental music. I I don't own the soundtrack. I've just sort of been skipping through YouTube and then what I noticed in the film as well. Yeah, I don't have much to say. I understand there's there's that song that plays while they're driving, showing the van driving on their way to Punxsutawney that I understand that Harold Ramis wrote that. I don't even know the words, but... I know that like the end of the chorus says something like baby I'll be your weatherman or something like that. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. I didn't know that. I just uh, read that recently and yeah, other than that, as far as the instrumental stuff goes, there's really not a ton to say about it, I don't think. I really like the use of I got you babe and this wasn't really something I thought about until uh, preparing to record just a short while ago. It's funny, his ultimate goal over the course of the film is companionship, I think. He initially thinks he wants recognition, but it becomes a search for companionship, especially when he's the only one reliving this day over and over and over again. So it's almost cruel that he wakes every morning of this eternal day with a song about companionship and about putting your little hand in mine and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. It, it It is sad and it becomes a torturous song to him and that really comes to fruition in that scene where he's maliciously destroying the clock over and over and over again, which is a funny scene, but you can just imagine the torment that he's been going through, waking up, been trying to get with Rita in some capacity and just ultimately failing because of his own inadequacies at this point. And the, you know, that song has that line that says we won't find out until we grow. Yeah. And I think I, you know, who knows if they did that on purpose or if it's just a happy coincidence, but I just think, you know, that kind of sums up his character arc is that he won't, uh, You know, he needs to grow to find out what he wants to know about Rita and about being with somebody. I love when soundtrack songs are chosen with purpose and they can be analyzed at least a little bit, even if the intent wasn't initially there. They just fit into the film so well that you can have discussions like this where you analyze the lyrics and think about, wow, this this really does fit what is happening in the film. So I like that. And it's it kind of works on another level, too. And just that that is the kind of song they would play on early morning talk radio that would, you know, get stuck in your head all day and just annoy the snot out of you. (laughs) That's true as well. Let's move on to our relevant section. So what what's one of your takeaways from this movie? You know, the big thing that I guess I take away from this movie is it's interesting to me that they picked the holiday of Groundhog's Day, which reading about the making of the film was just, and the writing of it was just kind of a coincidence. He was looking for a day on the calendar and he saw Groundhog's Day and he thought, that's a dumb day. (laughs) That's a dumb holiday. I'll make it that. But, uh, part of life is going through the same thing over and over and over again. You know, every year we have winter, summer, spring, fall, and it just kind of keeps rotating, you know, and Groundhog Day itself, it's like a cheat. It's like, we're hoping that the groundhog, I don't, I never remember. You don't want it to see its shadow so that winter will end early. But the truth is, is that just, that's just kind of how life is, is you have to go through winter to get to spring 
And the idea that rather than wallowing in that fact that life is going to continue to go like that, you can wallow, you can just continue to go with like that too and never improve or never change like Phil did through the first half of the movie. Or you can embrace the fact that winter is what makes spring great and, you know, really try to make the most of your days, whether it feels like it's just happening over and over and over again. I, I just really like that aspect of the movie. I like that as well. I, I like that it's about persevering through the repetition that life can bring sometimes, whether it's a, a, a repetitive work day or a work week where you're going in, you're doing the same thing every single day and it's tiresome, but it's also sort of this notion of your your world changes as much as you allow it to. And if you let it just be the same every day, it's going to be, right? Absolutely. And so that same with the winters it is the same sort of concept is if you let it be cold and frigid and you're non-responsive to the things happening around you, then it's going to be like that all the time. And so it's when Phil makes a change in his life, when he decides to, to show kindness to others, that's when spring basically starts emerging. That's when he makes it to the other side of February 2nd and is able to go on with his life. Yeah, And that sort of ties in with one of my two points that I wrote down, the efficacy of our actions or our presence. The The start of the film, Phil's chief concern is that he's not making a difference enough as a, a small-time weatherman. He wants to move to a bigger station, but he's he's stuck in the same station every year, covering Groundhog Day every year, uh, a groundhog named Phil just like him. Haha, ha, it's funny. I'm sure he loves those jokes. <laughs> um, but... He's stuck in a rut, just like you were talking about. When he starts reliving February 2nd, those feelings are even worsened because no matter what he does from day to day, nothing changes. There's no tomorrow for him. There's this Billy Joel song, which I think this might be the first time I've mentioned Billy Joel on this podcast, which is strange considering he's my favorite artist. Yeah. But he's got a song on his first album, I believe, called Tomorrow Is Today. And it was originally a suicide note, but the lyrics are so applicable. It's talking about how basically how what I do today doesn't make a difference because I've already seen tomorrow. It's going to be the same thing as it was today. And so what's the point, right? Yeah. Just like Billy Joel came out of the other side of that and he's still around today. Phil came out on the other side of that. He started understanding that the efficacy I can have, the meaning behind my actions are going to come from how I treat other people. And that's how I can make a difference from day to day is not trying to make something better for myself necessarily, but making the rest of the world around me better. And if you make the world around you better, then it's going to be better for you. Yeah, absolutely. And just how that's an intentional choice you have to make. It's not going to, it's not going to just happen. You know, I think, I think of that scene in the bowling alley where uh, Phil's saying, you know, what would you do if every day was the same and nothing you did mattered? And and uh, I forgot the uh, the drunk guy's name, but he goes, that about pretty much sums it up for me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like just acknowledging the fact that everything is kind of circular and going around. That's not that's not enough to I guess realizing it's happening isn't enough to break out of the cycle. You know, it's the I'm going to get up and I'm going to do something about it or else just waiting on it, anybody else to do it. It's just not going to have the same effect on your life and the lives of others around you. Definitely. Were there any other takeaways for you? You know, that's the that's the big one. 
just on a more of a movies in general scale, I'm I'm always kind of amazed when I watch it how dark it is for like a PG-13 movie or a PG movie. My uh, you know, I I saw it when I was 12, 13 years old and uh, you know, I just thought it was funny. But man, you know, we see him trying to commit suicide four times. We hear about him being shot, stabbed and burned as well and we never don't even get to see that. We'll get to see that. We don't even see that. I'm just always kind of amazed at how how bleak it gets there in the middle, even though I've seen it, you know, dozens upon dozens of times. But uh, I was starting it the other day to get ready for the podcast, and my 11, my oldest son, he's 11, he said, hey, Dad, can I watch Groundhog Day with you sometime? And I'm like, yeah, sure, maybe next time. But then he left, and I'm watching it again thinking, Ugh, this is this is awfully dark. <laughs> you know, it might, it might be a few years, even though I saw it when I was 12, 13, it might be a few years before I want to let him watch it because it is uh, pretty, pretty dark there in the middle. Yeah, it does have it, its heftier parts where it does get a little bit dreary. But that's where films like this do benefit from rewatches because your first takeaway may be, hey, what a funny movie. And yeah. it ends happy. So it works for me. But rewatching it, you you explore a little bit further. You go a little bit more in depth. You understand the character and you understand why he is in such despair and it's just a rewarding experience, sort of putting yeah. yourself in those shoes, thinking about how you would react, and uh, yeah, just understanding the character a little bit deeper. Yeah, you've talked me into it, Chad. I'm going to watch it again sometime. <laughs> I will do the same. I do have one more takeaway, though, and that is the idea of kindness being a culture. Uh, and what I mean by that is, early in the film, Phil tries to convince Rita of his personal virtue on his own. And he tries again and again and again to prove to Rita how wonderful a guy he is. He learns everything he can about her, what kind of drink she likes, this, that, anything he can do to convince her that he's a great guy that she should go to bed with. And every night it ends with a slap in the face. It never works for him. Yeah. But in the end, what's the magic trick? He shows the rest of Punxsutawney the kind of guy that he can be. He shows kindness to other people. He shows love to other people. And that's when Rita becomes aware of him and how great a guy he can be herself. So it's this idea of how we're not recognized by our status or by our individual accomplishments, but by how we treat others, by not how we love ourselves, but how we love other people. And so it was a phrase I thought of while I was watching is just the idea of kindness being a culture. You have to establish kindness around you before you can get kindness in return. Yeah, that's really good. I So many romances as when it comes to movies, like at the end of it, I think to myself, you know, are these two going to actually end up together? It seemed like a miracle <laughs> to, that eventually brought them together, these two incredibly selfish people who just had a meet-cute and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I don't really believe the happily ever after. But when I think about Phil and Rita, I do think that were they real people, that they would still be together because their relationship wasn't built around selfish need fulfillment. It was built around... Phil learning to love other people, and that's that's just really powerful. Looking online, there have been various speculations as to how long Phil was stuck in this time loop, and I see anything from two weeks to ten years. Oh, two weeks is definitely too short. To ten years to up to 30 or 40 years. 
And that, that's how long it takes to ultimately make a true change in yourself or to become as talented at piano as he eventually becomes. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is. Harold Ramis didn't really have an official answer. I think it says here is that in the, the DVD commentary, he estimated about 10 years, but uh, then later he estimated that was too short. So I think that for Phil to be stuck in this time loop for up to 40 years he learned a lot about himself. He changed a lot. What I would like to think after this movie, he goes home with Rita. They enjoy a, a happy life for the rest of his days. He stays in Pittsburgh as a weather reporter. He returns to Punxsutawney every year to report on Groundhog Day. He interacts with the people of the town. That's what I would love to think is that he, he understands the happiness he does have in his life, the kindness of other people that he has touched and, ultimately is satisfied with where he is rather than trying to accomplish something higher because he's reached that level of companionship that he was ultimately searching for. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's what I like to think too. At least, you know, that he, that he does come back there every year, just kind of, he's become Punxsutawney's favorite son away from home. And I think that's, that's a pretty fun way to think about it. I did see a website a few years ago that just kind of added everything up as far as like, using Malcolm Gladwell's idea that it takes 10,000 hours to really get really good at something. They just multiplied like how long it would take him to get good from things like the piano to the ice sculpting to the flipping cards and their whatever they came up with ended up being about 34 and a half years. (laughs) Yeah, wow. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Any final thoughts on the movie? Yeah, I just love this movie. Um, actually, watching it the last couple of days, I realized I, I owned it digitally, but I realized, that, man, I've never sat and watched the whole thing with uh, Harold Ramis's director's commentary. So I actually have that waiting for me to pick up at Walmart tomorrow. So I think I'll watch it for my third time this week tomorrow <laughs> night when I get home from work. <laughs> That's awesome. And I bet that's going to be a real treat considering we don't have Harold Ramis with us anymore either. Yeah. That'll be really nice to listen to. You know, I rented this on iTunes to watch it because I don't own it, but I'm probably going to go out fairly soon and get a copy for myself on Blu-ray so I can do the same. I watch it every year on uh, Groundhog Day. That seems like a good time and probably two other, two or three other times per year too. <laughs> well, uh, that is the end of the official 57th episode of Cinescope. Thank you, Jeremy, for bringing this movie to the table. I'm looking forward to revisiting it, watching it again very, very soon. And uh, I enjoyed talking with you on the podcast tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chad. This was a lot of fun. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Like C. Swinney, go to iTunes, leave us a rating, leave us a review. That's a big help to the show. It gives us a little bit of a boost in listenership. Uh, if you have any feedback or ideas, you can email me at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. You can use that email address if you're interested in co-hosting. If you have a movie that you love that you'd like to talk about, let me know and we'll get you on the show sometime. In fact, next week, we have somebody coming on the show who uh, did contact me, not through email, but through Facebook Messenger. But it was somebody who reached out to me about a movie that they wanted to talk about. So look forward to that. Now, Jeremy, where can people find you online? On Twitter, you can find me at J and Lincoln. That's J-A-Y-I-N-L-I-N-C-O-L-N. If you want to read what I write for Feelin' Film, you can find that at feelinfilm.com. That's feelin' spelled wrong without a G, film.com. I also am pretty active in their uh, Facebook group there. Uh, you're welcome to join us and join in on our conversation or send me a friend request. I'd like to make new friends. 
Great. I will make sure to link to all of those things. And we'll be sure to talk about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. sometime. Absolutely. Anytime. <laughs> the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A and Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes, all of my and Jeremy's contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you again, Jeremy. It's been a lot of fun having you on the show tonight. Thanks for having me, Chad. And thank you, everyone else, for listening to episode 57. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope. And we'll be back next week with episode 58. Have fun and celebrate movies. she seems like a pretty great lady and uh can i start over yeah <laughs> about <go> Rita? <laughs> sorry that was dumb